This is ContraZoom, a live in limbo production. This is ContraZoom. Where we go back and forth about film. I'm Dakota Arsenault. And I'm Andreas Fabulakis. And this is our fourth installment of the Best Picture countdown that we are doing. We are now firmly in the the 60s. Uh, this is the late 50s and early 60s. And uh, I think this has been... This has been going well so far, but I think now we're getting to a really exciting time period in American Hollywood cinema history, um, where techniques are changing, uh, it's modernizing, it's becoming less theatrical as a whole, and more sort of finding its own identity as a medium, uh, as far as what you can do combining sound and picture. And in this decade, so far, I think is is easily the best, you know, in, in the past, we've normally had kind of a few clunkers. But other than um, even our, our, our lowest couple of films, I wouldn't say they are as terrible as some of the other terrible films have been. What, what did you what are your first thoughts of this decade as a whole without getting into too much detail? I have the same sentiments. I know, um, ratings-wise, I was a bit harsh on some of these films in the lower end of things here, but I also think that's because I'm grading things within this sector. If you look at the greater picture, you're dealing with films that at least run in a very specific way, and they have a pacing, and they have a vision, and they have some some interesting ideas that just maybe don't work out too well. We don't have anything that is just straight up offensive like we have in the past. I think I think the days of the greatest show on earth and Cimarron are are essentially done. I don't know. We'll see once we get to out of Africa, but for now we're in safe territory. Yeah, I think it's it's really nice because also a uh, interesting thing is um at this time period there was a, a larger influx of uh stuff being imported into the States and, and, you know, more specifically film wise. So, you know, there's the rise of, uh, the French new wave, which was becoming like a big hit in sort of the, the beatnik sort of world, you know, New York, uh, Los Angeles, San Francisco, things like that, where you were able to see that. But then, you know, middle America was also able to start seeing some of these foreign films for the first time, uh, especially because world war two had ended and all these countries have sort of built themselves back up and now we're producing films again. And, not only were you having a lot of these European directors that fled during the war now working in the Hollywood system, you have all these American directors that are, you know, able to look up to uh, the the writing and work of Truffaut and Godard and, and Fellini and all that sort of stuff. And you can definitely start to see the influence on several of the films. I would even go so far as to say is... If looking at the films chronologically, almost exactly halfway through this list, um, starting at Lawrence of Arabia and on, even, even West Side Story on, I would say, there is a very clear shift in the way the films were made, um, in the style that they chose, in the acting, in the direction, in the lighting, every, every sort of aspect of the filmmaking process had sort of changed. Was that 
a noticeable shift for you if looking at it chronologically? Oh my god, yeah. Like, I've already started with the next batch of films because they're some of my all-time favorites, so I got too excited. And what I've noticed with this experiment is, you know, usually when we looked at the Best Picture winners, you know, you and I would probably think something like, well, of course the Godfathers would make it, or yeah, of course these kinds of films will make it. Looking at it now, if it wasn't for these 10 years that we just covered, I don't think things like The Godfather would even be looked at. If things like In the Heat of the Night or something as grand as Lawrence of Arabia or something as as out there as West Side Story in terms of going outside of its own comfort zone, if things like this weren't Best Picture winners, which led up to like more experimental winners like French Connection and Midnight Cowboy, if these didn't win, we wouldn't have had any anything near to, to those winners actually winning. Like. This is the batch of 10 that really took us somewhere different. And it's it's weird because you'd think it'd be a little bit more gradual of a change. But as you said, it's very noticeable. It's like, and here's where the Academy changes. It's very weirdly precise. It, it really is. like It's almost like a, a line drawn into the sand of before and after... Um, a European influence. And it very much is a European influence. If you've seen any, uh, French, Italian, German films from the sixties, you can, you can see their imprints all over what's being done. It's absolutely fascinating. Oh yeah, absolutely. And we'll get more into that with the next episode, especially when you see something like the French connection being heavily influenced by French new wave. But here we've got some very interesting things that, we have like the styles from from across the pond being brought here, especially in films like In the Heat of the Night. So it's going to be very exciting to get a look at, at these because these are some of the most colorful and and enriched films we've touched upon yet within these episodes. Yeah, I agree. All right. Uh, before we get into this, though, I had a chance to talk with Katrina Wong Shu, who is our social media editor, and ask her about what some of her favorite films are. So let's listen to that. And like I said, I am now joined uh, by Katrina Wong-Shu, who is our social media editor. How are you doing today, Katrina? Pretty good. How about you? I'm doing great. So this is a fun little segment where we've had I've had a couple different uh, contributors to the website join us, where I just want to get to know uh, what kind of movies they like, what, because, you know... I know what type of music you like. That's very obvious to anyone on the website. You can see the interviews that you do, the shows that you shoot, and things like that. But no one really knows what kind of movies. And we've got a movie podcast, so we might as well talk about them. Yeah. Um, what was the last movie you watched? I hope it's not too embarrassing to ask that. Oh, uh, Deadpool. Deadpool? What did you think of it? I thought it was pretty good. Yeah, I haven't seen it yet. I've, I want to, but it just I just haven't gotten around to it yet. Really? Yeah. I would assume that you would have been on top of that. <laughs> uh, I think it's I think it's a little bit of like superhero fatigue sometimes. Yeah, I can see that. Where I'm just like, yeah, I want to see that, but like, I don't know, I just saw one like two months ago. 
<laughs> Which I know is ridiculous because this is completely different than all the other ones. Yeah. It was kind of cool, though, because, like, I don't know, I don't really care for superhero movies that much. But I ended up going to see it because Ryan Reynolds, anything with him, I'm like, okay. He's kind of the best, isn't he? He is. <laughs> <laughs> He's so dreamy, those eyes. <laughs> How'd you know? Oh, because I feel the exact same way. <laughs> uh, so did you, was that just like uh, regular or was it 3D or what was that? Um, it was just regular because I went opening weekend and that was all that was left. <laughs> oh, yeah. It was pretty busy for those first few weeks. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, do you, when you are at home, do you, do you like watch movies in your spare time or are you more of like a let's binge watch a, a TV show on Netflix sort of person? Yeah. More of a binge watcher. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was binge watching Bob's Burgers the other day. Oh, that I love that. Oh, so, so good. <laughs> Are you more of a, a Tina girl or a Louise girl? Tina. Or a Jean? Oh my god, no, Tina. <laughs> Tina's the best. Yeah, what about you? Uh, Tina, I, I can do her grunts pretty well, so <laughs> I like I like her. <laughs> <laughs> now you have to do it, because like, you can't just say you can do it pretty well and then not do it. I, I could do it better if I I haven't watched it for a little while, but yeah. if if I was watching, I could do it a little bit better. <laughs> That's pretty awesome, though. Oh, man, that was awkward. Oh. <laughs> so, I'm sorry. <laughs> when you do watch movies, are you, what do you like? Because you just said you don't normally watch the superhero ones. Do you like uh, comedies? Or are you more like a, a serious drama person or uh, something different? Older movies, newer movies? What is it? Um, I feel like this is kind of embarrassing, but I only tend to go to, like, Disney movies. Yeah? <laughs> yeah. Like the Disney animation movies or, like, the live-action stuff, too? Um, Disney animation, I guess, because I, like, grew up doing that, and, like, every year my family goes to Disney World. So oh, really? It's just, like, a vicious cycle, I guess. Do you have a favorite princess? Yes, Belle. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Do you have a favorite princess, Dakota? Um, probably not. I, I... <laughs> I like watch most of them when I was younger, but I, for the life of me, I don't really, I, I know what they're about, but I can't like intimately remember the details for most of them. Yeah. Where like now I'm like going back and not necessarily like the, the princess ones, but just the Disney movies in general that are older and be like, oh yeah, I should rewatch it right now because of uh, all the Jungle Book posters and trailers that oh, I'm seeing yeah. around. I'm like, oh, I really want to rewatch the Jungle Book. I don't think I've seen that since I was like five years old. Yeah, it's always good to like go back and watch it, but then sometimes they're not as good as you remember it, which kind of sucks. Yeah. So are you more of like the the golden age Disney's of like the 80s, 90s ones or like the the really the older ones from like the 50s and 60s? Uh, actually, I have no idea. That's really bad. Actually, probably when I was like smaller, so probably like the 90s ones because I really liked Goofy Movie and like Lion okay. King. Well, those are those are classics. Yeah. The Lion King is definitely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, cool. Well, and that's... the music on that was pretty good as well, like for all of their all of their movies seem to have pretty good music too. Yeah, they they definitely managed to make it, you know, not too cheesy, but uh just serious enough to be enjoyable that you shouldn't be too embarrassed to listen to the soundtrack outside of the movie. <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, Elton John doing Lion King or Phil Collins doing Tarzan and stuff like that. 
Yeah, it's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> All yeah. right. So I feel like I, I, I know a little bit about you then as far as the movies you like then. So uh, the, the other big thing about it is I want to know what are your three favorite movies of all time. That could be, you know, the movies that you watch the most, the movies that had the biggest impact on you, the the movies, whatever, whatever that definition means to you. What, what do you have? A, is there a specific order or is it just your three and they're one, they're just all your number one favorite movie? How is this working? Um, probably like three of my like number one favorite movies that I would like always watch if I'm just like bored or something. I'd be like, okay, I'll pop that back in. So there's no oh, order to like, this? No, not really. Okay, well then let's start with the first one. Um, Nightmare Before Christmas. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. When did you Actually, first watch it? Uh, I first watched it probably in like seventh grade. Did it scare you? No, I like loved it. And then I became freakishly obsessed with it. And I think that's why Sean coined me the emo kid. <laughs> I'm like, thanks. Ah, yes. Yep. <laughs> no, that's uh, definitely a movie that, that really resonated with a lot of people in our age group. Yeah. Because, like, it was kind of meant for kids, but still it was weird enough that as you grew up, you you discovered more layers about it. Yeah. Like, going back and watching I think I watched it for the first time in several years just last year it's a really weird movie i know and then like the thing is too is like my friend when we were in like um eighth grade she went to a different school her school actually did a play on it and that was kind of neat but at the same time it's kind of weird seeing it at like i don't know i guess because it was like catholic school you see them doing nightmare before christmas and you're like that's kind of weird not like what they would normally be doing as a play <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah uh well that's cool do you do you like have like a a yearly ritual around halloween to watch it or do you just watch it all the time halloween and christmas Halloween and Christmas. Time. i guess that would be my next question is it a halloween movie or is it a christmas movie i'm not too sure i feel like it's okay for like both of them yeah i i don't know i just like taking taking it out all the time I guess if you're American, you can call it a Thanksgiving movie because it's sort of in between because they have Thanksgiving in November. Oh, yeah. I always forget about that, that they have a weird time. Ours is probably the right time, right? Oh, absolutely. October Thanksgiving is the best. (laughs) Because there's enough time then between that and Christmas that, you know, you don't have to see your relatives all at the same time all over again. I know. Then for the Americans, it's just kind of like too close. We'll see you in like two weeks. (laughs) Yep. So then, what's your number two movie? Number two would probably be Goofy Movie. Yeah? Okay, yeah. you mentioned this earlier. I have not seen that since I was a kid. Oh my gosh. <laughs> you should totally watch it again. I don't know, I was just watching it for fun the other day. Yeah? And, I don't know, I really like the music in it. And then my mom, she saw me watching it, and she like brought out these really embarrassing pictures. Because <laughs> like, Max was my favorite. And I used to like dress up with him, like him, and like I had like the weirdest like orange sunglasses. I don't even know why she let me out of the house looking like that. It was pretty <laughs> embarrassing. <laughs> what about what about this movie means so much to you? Is it just something that you found funny when you were a kid, and so it just sort of stuck with you? Um, Goofy was always like my favorite out of I guess kind of like the original like Mickey gang. So then when it's like you saw Max and like I was like, oh, my God, Max, he's like, I, I don't know. I just assumed he was always like fifth grade or something like that, like not too much older kind of thing. 
wasn't this movie i think all i remember from this movie is near the end when they're driving in the car and he has to like choose which way on the highway to go and goofy's being like so what what way do we go because he's trying to go somewhere is that is that the movie yeah and then then they like go into the river yeah that's sort of all i remember about that movie (laughs) and it was like a kind of depressing moment yeah and then they get like really sad it's like really good and then it's like when they go off into the river they're all like stranded and it's all sad because they're fighting yes (laughs) that and i think they like eats cheese from a can and i think that was the first time i'd ever seen that Oh my god, that was the first time I've ever seen that too. It was like that one dude with the sunglasses or something sitting in the principal's office with the like cheese can. Yeah, and still like, I think I only learned that that was a a real thing like a couple years ago. I I thought that was just like made up for that movie, but apparently (laughs) no cheese in a can is a thing. It's a real thing. I remember I thought like the closest thing I could find to that at that time was like cheese whiz and my mom's like you're not going to eat that you're going to think that's really gross and then we're going to be stuck with like a jar of cheese whiz and like (laughs) eventually she bought it and that's what happened i took like one spoon i was like mom that's really nasty and she's like you're gonna have to finish that it is really gross (laughs) it is imagine what it's like if it came from a aerosol like can though that's probably worse yeah i don't (laughs) know healthy i love cheese there are so much better cheeses that you can get that is very true and probably it's a lot healthier than what comes out of a can (laughs) absolutely all right so we've got two animated movies down is the third one also an animated movie yes yes which one is it (laughs) i don't know okay the problem is is that i feel like i have four favorites because it's stuck between beauty and the beast and the lion king okay well and it all kind of falls under disney (laughs) hey that's all right yeah. So so what it what makes it difficult to separate them two? Um Beauty and the Beast was like the first princess movie that I saw. And it was just like I became like obsessed with it when I was smaller. And I was also very much obsessed with like Lion King. And that one I wore out three tapes because I kept rewinding like the Timon and Pumbaa part of it. Oh really? Like the, yeah. the VHS ca- cassette? yeah wow i got a funny story i had the uh-huh. i have a funny story i had the okay. soundtrack on cassette uh-huh. and i'm pretty sure i wore out part of that tape as well listening to it all the time oh my god that's awesome though it was really good it was a really good movie <laughs> <laughs> was it you know what's really embarrassing though is that like when i was smaller i used to have a timon that i would take around with me everywhere and to this day this is what people that I grew up with remember me for is carrying it to school every day until like second grade. Oh yeah. <laughs> so there's Katrina and Timon. Yeah, pretty much. Even like family pictures. My mom tried to get rid of it and she's like, no, you can't have him in the picture. And I was like, no, he needs to sit here. <laughs> I bet that thing smelled so bad. By the oh end my of God. <laughs> I know. And then the worst part is she accidentally threw it out because it was in a bag with like other stuff. No, like, I don't know. I was so mad. <laughs> and then she's like, this is embarrassing for me because you're in like 10th grade and you're getting upset over something. Oh, <laughs> yeah. That's Did she replace bad. it? Yeah. Now, but he's not as cute as the first one. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's pretty terrible. 
<laughs> and embarrassing and weird. So did you ever dress up as Belle then for Halloween or anything? Mm, surprisingly, no. No? No. I just really liked the movie. I was never really, like, I guess, dress up in, like, princess. I did dress up as Simba, which is kind of weird, I guess. Did you just, like, glue a mane around your face or something and wear yellow? <laughs> no, I made my mom make a costume from scratch because really? I couldn't find one. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Are there any pictures that exist of this? We can include them in the show notes. Oh, my God. If I, I'll go dig and see if I can find it for you. <laughs> <laughs> that would be amazing. <laughs> and I'll probably see if I can find a picture of that ugly Timon that got tossed sure. out. Sure. Yes, yes. If you have either of those, I will gladly include them in the show notes. Oh, my God. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Did you have any uh, non-animated films that sort of come close to, to cracking your list, but just aren't high enough up there? Oh my god, I don't, I'm not too sure. I don't think so. Actually, no. I really like the Lizzie McGuire movie, but I don't know if that really counts, because I can't remember if that was in theaters or not, or just the Disney Channel. Yeah, that, that's fine. <laughs> but yeah, no, I was like obsessed with that for a while, too. It se- that seemed to be a movie that people that if you liked it, you were really obsessed with it. I used to go over to my best friend's house in like grade seven, grade eight, and he had a twin sister. Mm-hmm. And every time I was over there, she was always watching it with her and her friends. Oh my god, that's kind of awesome! <laughs> like I'm pretty sure I've seen that movie ten times in like five minute increments. Oh my god, I, I just managed to piece it together. <laughs> oh, that's like at work. It's like they were we're always playing movies on the thing on the screens, and we can piece together everything. But it's like we've seen it like fifty times by the end of the week. <laughs> And then by the end of the week, there's still that one scene. You're like, oh, I haven't seen this part yet. Yeah. And it's like you tend to always look up at the same part and you're like, this again? (laughs) (laughs) It knows. I know. It's so sad. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much for, uh, for sharing this list with us. Thank you so much for having me. Um, Where can people follow you on Twitter or whatever? Um, On Twitter, it's Penguin's Lick Cake. L-I-K yeah it's kind of weird it never really fit like so I had to cut it cut a letter somewhere <laughs> <laughs> and on Instagram it's the wandering cat X all right I'll make sure to include that so make sure you follow Katrina thank you so much uh, for joining us today thanks so much Dakota I had so much fun all right in these darkened hours when everyone's asleep there's a light on in the kitchen Remember where I left the key There's a light on Yeah, there's a light on Yeah, there's a light on in the kitchen No matter how late you go out There's a light on in the kitchen Alright, so um, now I think we should just get right into this countdown. We're uh, in the first part of our episode. We're going to go through the first five films from 10 through 6. Uh, and then coming in at number 10, we have Gigi from 1958, or Gigi, uh, as they say it in the film. Uh, and this movie is about uh, the weary conventions of Parisian society. A rich playboy and his youthful courtesan in training enjoy a platonic friendship, but it may not stay platonic for long, according to IMDb. Um, this is directed by Vincente Minnelli, uh, who is way more 
should be way more famous than just being uh, Eliza Minnelli's father. Um, he is a, a musical director. He uh, did he also do cabaret? No, he didn't do cabaret. He did American in Paris. Yeah. Uh, he did a bunch of other Judy Garland movies, which is how that uh, they met in um, Meet Me in St. Louis, stuff like that, mm-hmm. where he's extremely well known in the musical genre, uh, which is a bit of a niche. But here you have a pretty interesting one where I would say it's stylistically and, and story-wise a little bit similar to American in Paris, except for lacking all the the charm and fun that Gene Kelly brought to that movie. It lacked a little bit more than that, I think. With American in Paris, it wasn't even just the charm. There were moments where he stood in awe, in absolute awe, looking at the musical numbers, like, where did this imagination come from? With Gigi, I found it a little bit more perplexing. Like, where does all of this cynicism come from? Like, you have these snobby aristocrats, basically, where everything they say is just so rich with with butter on top, and everything is just so thick and viscous. And when you have snobby characters like this, you need a little bit of leeway where it's like, okay, you know, we get why these people are like this. But here, a lot of it is just basically uncalled for where a lot of it is just we feel much better than thou uh, you know whether they be talking about the lower class whether they be talking about women i don't know it it was just very cynical and just i i kind of get the purpose it was it was satirizing this culture but at the same time it felt less like a like a satire and more like you don't get it cuz you're not a part of the club what do you think yeah it was it was weird. And the movie started off in this like really super creepy way with this song sung by an older gentleman uh, called Thank Heaven for Little Girls. And it was just really weird. Like it's supposed to be this playful thing. And by little girls, he means, you know, uh, women who have just sort of turned of age, you know, late teens, early 20s that aren't quite full-fledged aristocratic women. But there's shots of like actual young girls playing in parks and things like that. And so you get this weird sort of like cross thing where it sounds very pedophiliac in the way he's going about it being, being like sort of, oh, it's, it's sort it's even hard to explain where it's not quite smugness. It's just like, this is what it's, this is what it is. This is what I'm singing about. So just enjoy it. It just gives off this really weird, creepy uncle vibe. Predatory that, almost. Yeah. Very predatorial that like, I don't. I, I feel weird even talking about it now, and I don't know if it's just because the movie has aged, and so it would have been a much more innocent thing back then, or what? Ah, uh, that could be it because this movie won for some reason, and this is during a time where, as we said, you know, the Academy was getting a more familiar kind of approach to how they graded films ever since, like after the. The Untrustworthy Greatest Show on Earth win. So we've got to look at how this actually won. And when you have a song like that, I agree. It started off extremely creepy. Like, I don't like this man at all. And the worst part is, he's singing to you. He's not singing to people in, in, the, in the movie. He's singing to you and looking at you. And it's like, stop looking at me. This is weird. You but- know, that might actually be what's the worst part about it all. Because if it was <laughs> to an audience, it would make a bit more sense. Yeah, he's singing directly to you. He's like, hello there, audience. Let me tell you about girls. It's like, oh, no, this is this is weird. And 
everything's I think everything's frozen in place to kind of look like uh, a pastel painting of sorts. So he's creeping through everybody who's frozen in place to talk to you and tell you about little girls, and it's very very perplexing. Yeah, um, and then like moving on to some other stuff, there's. Uh, a lack of continuity with some of the shots where like for the 99.9% mo- of people will never notice a continuity air unless you've watched a movie for like the 10th time where you'd be like, Oh, they switch hands when they do this. But there are some very, very clear continuity things, whether it's uh suit jackets being done up or opened or animals being in scenes. I think there was like a scene with some donkeys where the the continuity completely changed in that and I'm just like who who is running this film that was not paying attention to these little things um and then like there's this terrible gag of Gigi's mother is heard but not seen as always practicing her opera singing and yet she's apparently this terrible singer you know background chorus person and yet every time they start to hear her sing they just shut the door so that way you can't hear her anymore it's like what was the point of this gag it's not funny and what they do it like what four or five times yeah this movie was full of a lot of botched experiments and maybe they worked back then i don't think they do now because there was another another trick that they had if you want to call it that where in the ballroom sequences every time somebody would enter the room the music would just stop no fade away no gradual dissension just flat out stop as if in the editing room they literally just cut everything with scissors and everybody would stare at these people walking in and then the music would start again once they stopped judging these people out loud thinking, oh, look at what they're wearing. And I thought it was jarring as hell. And I usually love stuff like this. It was... Did you find it as clunky as I did? Because I thought it was extremely off-putting. I don't think that bothered me as much um, because I... It's interesting because... Uh, there's almost something similar that we could talk about in My Fair Lady, where they do something a little bit similar to that, uh, not quite in the same style, but it didn't bother me because at least it was a uh, it the, the choice made sense, you know. So this new person, they're basically living in a tabloid world, and when this new whoever these new rich people are coming in, rich and famous celebrities. Everyone stops. The world completely freezes and they have to see what they are because you do not want to miss what's happening. And then as, you know, they've, they've had their look, they can continue and then go back to gossiping about them. It, it sort of made sense in, in that way where I can see where you maybe find it a bit clunky, but, but I can at least understand the rationale behind it. Fair enough. Whereas with the opera singing, it just didn't make much sense as to why they kept referring back to it, right? Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> it, it was like, okay, we get it after the first time that you do it that um, Gigi's mother is more preoccupied with her own career, which they somehow simultaneously both try to demonize her and commend her for. It's really weird how they how they do that. Uh, and then they just keep going with it. Like, not even rule of three comedy. I'm pretty sure it happened at least four or five times. It was a lot. It was basically beaten to death. But at least let's talk about one or two things that were at least pretty good, because this is far from our lowest rated that we've done so far in these podcast episodes. And I think the biggest high point for me is the titular character herself, Gigi, played by Leslie Caron, which 
isn't featured nearly as nicely as she was in American in Paris, but at least here it's kind of seen as a little bit more like her own starring role where she's kind of the lead. And I, I find her like a bit of a saving grace at times because I feel like she did, she was the only thing that brought a lot of charm to the role, I think, whereas even the writing was basically fighting against her, like a lot of the dialogue she was given. But I found most of the film's essential charm, not coming from these, these swooning men, but from the, from the actual character Gigi herself. What did you think? I, I agree with that. And on a, another note, I think uh, her grandmother, who she lives with and sort of t- takes over the motherly role, and her great aunt, who gives her etiquette and high society lessons, the three of them together uh, really make the film somewhat bearable. The, the, the scenes with Gigi and her great aunt doing these etiquette lessons are the funniest moments of the film. They have the most heart in the film and you can actually see some uh, character development between both of them going on in these scenes. Uh, her great aunt uh, being played by Isabel Jeans and her, um, her grandmother who I'm, uh, I'm blanking on. Oh, Hermione Gingold. If, yeah. uh, if, if that's how you say it, uh, those scenes definitely were the best and, and the ladies absolutely seal the movie. The men come off as creepy, pervy, whatever, which I guess is sort of, you know, part of what the, they're satirizing that whole male dominated, uh, sexual culture. But, uh, it, it either has not aged well or it never worked in the first place. Yeah, the thing is, even if these people were seen as villains, the men, you know as much as I do, good writing means that villains have a soft spot where, you know, even Amon Gert in Schindler's List, you're like, I have a bit of a soft spot for this heartless killing monster because he seems brainwashed. He comes from a place where he's trying to break out of being a Nazi, but he just can't. With this, it's literally like, there's this one moment where... Uh, the main the main male character who's played by uh, Louis Jordan is basically joking about this woman's life that he basically wrecked because he let her on and basically dumped her where they refer to it as a suicide I had to come to you asking did they meet a literal suicide because if they did I wouldn't put it past him to laugh about it you know he's joking and they're like that was a great suicide of that young lady it's your first oh yeah no it was terrific her life is completely ruined which whether they mean ruining her reputation or actually having her kill herself, I would have believed either or, because they're such assholes in this film that it could have been either one. And who wants to root for that? Who wants to have any sympathy for anybody who basically laughs at people's lives being ruined? Yeah, it's a, it's a weird one for sure. Uh, let's go on to our next film, though. Uh, coming in Speaking at num- of weird. <laughs> yes, coming in at number nine, we have Tom Jones from 1963. And um, it's about 18th century England. Um, two cousins, Tom Jones and Master Blyfall, grew up together in p- privilege in the Western countryside, but could not be more different in nature. Uh, and then it sort of follows uh, the... How do you even describe this movie? Can you describe it better? Because the even the IMDb synopsis is so long that it wouldn't really make sense. Uh, Tom is a playboy of some sorts, and Blyfel is this jerk. 
I don't know if you've seen this, but there's this there was this campaign poster for the 2012 Oscars where they had literally every single Academy Award win represented with its own statuette. I have it style. on my fridge. Oh my god, yes! If after the show, can you let me know where to get one because I do want one. But if you <laughs> if you know what I'm talking about, then. The one for Tom Jones literally has a statuette basically just covered in kisses because I don't even think they know how to reflect this film. Basically, it's literally this bastard child who's a playboy. And once he wants to get serious with a woman, that's when they're like, oh, no, wait, no, we don't want this man anymore. He's a bastard. He's he's unworthy. And then from there on in, there's weird editing cuts where you see running dogs, um, running men, Benny Hill chase sequences people winking to the audience and speaking to the audience and just arms being thrown up in the air saying, this is our film. That's basically what it is to me. <laughs> I, I think if, if this movie had not won best picture, this would be a good film to show in film classes of here's what, you know, this is, this is at the time when, uh, people are, are trying new things in film for the first time in a long time. Can, let's let's look at what these choices did and how they evolved from there. So whether it's things like breaking the fourth wall, which isn't really new, uh, the style of editing, the the type of storyline that was going on, the type of comedy that was being used, I think all of that in individual scenes would make great lessons on breaking down uh, experimental filmmaking. And probably owes a lot to, especially the, the French New Wave style. It's very, a lot of it is very, uh, easy to tell from that. It's just as a whole, it doesn't work. It's too clunky. It's too disjointed, but taken scene by scene, it's not a bad movie. Yeah. It's far from bad. It's simply okay. And to be honest, it did remind me a lot, as you said, of like the French New Wave movement, whether it be Godard-based or even thematically with, um, oh, Rules of the Game. That's that's what I was thinking of, where I saw a lot of the same kind of hokey elements in that as well. But I think the execution wasn't quite as, as rich as we're going to get to with some of these other more experimental films in this episode and in the next one. Um, but either way, it's a little bit more commendable than GG was, I would say, because here it at least feels like a satire. It just feels a little bit too satirical with how goofy it is. I remember when you first watched it, I knew it was a comedy-based period piece, but when you came to me and you said, it's bloody weird, I wasn't expecting that. And you basically said it was akin to a Monty Python episode that wasn't quite as good as some of the other ones. I believe it because you have this character played by Albert Finney, who's a very serious kind of approach to it and not really funny in funny scenarios. So it's very perplexing as to what exactly was the, was the direction here. Are we, are we basically, is this like a more serious kind of comedy or is it just goofy as hell? Cause it kind of tries to do both. Yeah. Uh, and it's weird because like there are some things that work really well. I would say specifically, uh, the hunting scene, it's shot like an action film. Uh, and they use a great, they, they use, uh, ADR, additional dialogue requirement, uh, very well or fully, which is, um, where you add sound 
and dialogue after the fact to a scene. And so you have this hunting scene that's shot like an action film where it, I don't know how they shot it. If they're using a, a dolly crane or, uh, yeah. or something on the back of a car or on a helicopter or something like that. And it, the camera is weaving in and out of these horses. And then the whole time it's like it was the sound was replaced with this thunder of hooves. Um, that just like gives such an intensity to it. Whereas if the whole film was sort of not necessarily shot with that sort of intensity, but that sort of dedication to sticking to something, I think the film would be a lot greater overall because it, it, that was by far a fascinating scene to watch. Yeah. That was basically the, the opening sequence in Cibaran, but not quite as bad where Cibaran was like, okay, this won't be bad. And the rest of the film ended up being absolute monstrosity. With this, it was something where, like you, I, I saw that scene and I said, okay, you know what, I'm hooked. But for the rest of the film, I was very disengaged. And it was unfortunate because I was like, that scene was actually quite magnificent. I loved it. I thought it was so interesting, especially for its time. It was above and beyond a lot of things that were happening back then. So I was very invested until a lot of the actual story was happening, where it's like I... I don't care as much, you know, I want more things like this. And then when you see the, the rest of the experimentations, such as high-sped chase sequences that look very Betty Hill, it wasn't the same. I was like, okay, no, please go back to what you were doing before, because that actually looked like an experimentation with effort, whereas these other things felt like, let's toss that in, because that might be interesting, you know? Yeah, and then you you sort of mentioned what I meant about Monty Python, but like uh, my my actual analogy was like it's a poor ripoff of Monty Python doing uh, like an Oscar Wilde sort of film where it's satirizing the rich, um, while you know t rich people making fun of rich people for being rich, that sort of thing. But it's all done in such a confusing manner, um, and then like three quarters of the way through the film, there's this like sensual scene that's sort of akin to um uh thomas crown affair with the famous chess scene but this is like they're using food to show them basically having sex and it's this really weird uncomfortable thing where like you know they're eating ripping off large chunks of meat from drumsticks and things like that and playing with their food and you're just like what am i watching and then it just like keeps getting weirder and weirder and like the music has the emotional integrity of like a looney tunes episode or something yeah i i feel like with that and many other things it was just jokes i misfired and and tricks that just didn't work I don't know about you, but I didn't laugh a single time except once. Uh, there was this one moment later on where they ha they're having like a masquerade with uh, uh, masks, I guess, obviously. Um, and one of one of the older gentlemen is wearing like an elephant mask. And I can't remember the exact situation, but he basically like they're talking about civilization and he goes, oh, civilization, my trunk. And I can't tell if I laughed due to the sheer stupidity or if it was actually funny. I can't tell because nothing else worked with me i like did you laugh at all during this or is it just me uh i think so my the last note that i had was at least some parts of the film were funny and i think that was supposed to be damning with faint praise in my notebook okay um i can't think <laughs> of anything in particular but there were definitely some moments where you just like sort of whether it's laughing out of the stupidity of it or or something 
I, I it got a few chuckles out of me. Um, so yeah, that's that's just damning it with faint praise at best. Um, and, and just like a whole bunch of plot devices that just didn't really work. Um, were almost something similar to Gigi, which we didn't talk about, where both of these films uh, end up with the the woman going back to the man, but neither times it makes sense. Like the whole point of Tom Jones chasing after the woman he loves and she keeps leaving him because he keeps cheating on her. Like he cheats on her three, four different times. He gets a, a, a town woman pregnant yet for some reason she still takes him back at the very end. And it just sort of like makes no sense, especially since she knew that he had slept with, the woman that she's been living with, the older woman, and I'm, I, I didn't understand that. Uh, that plot didn't really make any sense to me. I couldn't really make heads or tails. And then looking at the film, the nominations, the Oscar nominations it got, the the one lead woman who is you know somewhat decent, uh, played by Susanna York, um, is the only female that didn't seem to get an Oscar nomination. Every other lady in it did. The the Italian woman, townswoman that he has an affair with, the barn girl, the older woman that he has an affair with at the end. Um, I, oh, the main girl's maid or something like that. Where it's just like none of that made sense to me. Well, it looks like she made. She shouldn't have gone back to him then. Maybe she would have been nominated. But yeah, none of it made sense to me either because they don't. They don't give a very good reason. Maybe she felt bad because everybody was chastising him for being a bastard child. I'm not quite. I'm not quite sure either. But at that point, I just wasn't really interested. To me, the whole thing, to you, it felt like a Monty Python ripoff that just didn't work nearly as well. To me, it felt like a hastily put together kind of like high school sketch show where it's like this is what we put together on the history of Tom Jones, and it's like here's this joke. We're just discovering sex work in high schools, so or here's this weird sex scene with food. Um, we, we, we think this kind of stuff's funny. So here's a chase sequence. Here's an off color joke. And, and yeah, this is a lot of fun. So you could appreciate the kind of efforts behind it, but at the same time, so much of it just doesn't work. that I just don't necessarily care too much when bigger things don't work. If this, if these kinds of experiments don't work, I'm not going to care too much about the plot either because I just, it's a movie I didn't care too much about, just period, I would say. But Albert Finney's charming, I guess. <laughs> yeah. If I'll, I'll end on this. If you're a film student, I recommend checking it out so that way you can dissect it as far as what techniques are used. But uh, as a, if you're just wanting to watch it as far as entertainment or uh, to learn something, don't skip it. Just, just skip it. Um, yeah. Yeah, easily. So coming in at number eight is the epic Ben-Hur from 1959. Um, And when a Jewish prince is betrayed and sent into slavery by a Roman friend, he regains his freedom and comes back for revenge. This is one of the movies that, if you're a fan of old school movies, you've probably already seen this. And especially if you're from like an older generation than us, you probably really loved it. Uh, This is a movie where... Technically, it still holds up. Uh, specifically, we'll go into a bit later, but the chariot race itself, which has sort of always been called the center point of the film. Um, but looking at it with fresh eyes, I never seen it before this. 
there's a lot of it that doesn't really work for three and a half hours. I think no matter what, it would be hard to make a perfect three and a half hour film. Um, and so if this film was two and a half hours, this film would be a lot higher on our, our list than it actually ended up being. Yeah, this is one where I watched it before. I didn't like it too much. I watched it again. And I thought extremely highly of it, but the more it kind of I kind of sat on it, the the less I kind of thought of it. There's a lot of magic here. Obviously, there's a lot of magic with the acting, with the production, with a lot of the actual scenes. But in terms of just telling a story, a lot of it feels like let's let's tell the story about the, this this character named Judah Ben Hur, who's got a lot of interesting aspects to him. But I also want to kind of talk about religion. Yeah, and I also kind of want to talk about these other characters as well. It's it veers a little bit too much off its own rails, you know. And if it was his own kind of chariot scene, I think it would be one that would end up winning because it didn't have a very solid race. So it it didn't gun ahead with what it had. It tried to tell a little bit too much, but in that respect, I don't fault it too greatly because it's at least things it tried to at least care about with telling, like these all of these other different avenues. But, you know, had it been more solid, you'd be right. It'd be higher on our list because there is a lot of actual wonder here. Yeah, uh, I, I, it's funny. I'm reading... Reading the commentary, the trivia after the fact, uh, which is uh, something I always do on Ben Hur because I find that it, uh, on on IMDb uh, because I find it fascinating to learn about the movies. Um, it's interesting to learn that how the writer of the movie had told um, Stephen Boyd, who plays the the main antagonist, uh, that. It's essentially a love story between uh, Judah Ben Hur and uh, Masala. And the reason why they basically have anger towards each other is because uh, they sort of betrayed each other and left each other. Watching the movie, that's all I see right away. And yet, you know, someone like Heston, who I know for political religious reasons would never want to be associated with that, tried so hard to flatly deny that this was true. Uh, but like, you can't help but watch this movie and be like, yeah, this is a gay love story. <laughs> like they're not even subtle about it they do everything except make out on screen you know the the groping the hugging the the looking at each other with longing eyes like everything about this screams that it's a gay relationship movie either that or, or brotherly love but i think it goes beyond those lines but within the actual film it's supposed to seem like a strong childhood bond which you can kind of get but then yeah once they get a little bit too into it it's like I, I sense something else as well, but nonetheless, whatever it's supposed to be, at least that's one of the one of the strongest key elements of the film is their betrayal and their connection with one another. But I actually didn't know that, but it makes perfect sense now that that would be the case. And I kind of wish that it was the case because I think it would have gone the extra mile with kind of jumping out of its own comfort element and seeing like what it could have done back then right it's sort of interesting we're like i don't think either way they would have admitted that because no one wanted to admit that they were gay back then but yeah. i think this was a case of the people on the creative side of things the production side of things making decisions about how the film was going to be and then the actors specifically the lead actor deciding a different sort of thing and because the lead actor was so famous he could sort of get away with doing things his own way so you know you have 
from from all accounts, the director William Wyler uh, is a very hands off director as far as his, his actors are concerned. He was way more interested in camera placement and shot selection and editing and things like that to carry to care about what the actors were doing. Really, they were more just other set pieces for him to move around. Um, where it's sort of interesting to sort of think about in that way where, you know, the director has one idea in his mind and the actor has another idea in mind. And the director basically tricked him into the performance he wanted to give probably. Yeah, essentially. Um, but nonetheless, speaking of performances, I, I was absolutely floored, I think, with Heston's performance. It wasn't pitch perfect, I would say, but the moments where he was solid, I mean, good Lord, was he... Was he really strong, you know, especially in times of turmoil where, you know, he's trying to fight for his cause, saying that they did nothing wrong. And he tried to take the blame for the, the, the shilling on the roof, basically falling and hitting one of the one of one of the officers and almost killing him. You know, there are a lot of moments where he had to fight for his cause, whether it be like literal fighting for his life as a as a slave on a boat or, you know, the chariot sequence or basically asking uh, Masala, what went wrong? Why do you hate me so? Is it because of my heritage? There are so many defining moments that I think Heston absolutely nailed. It's weird because uh, while he's better than he was in uh, The Greatest Show on Earth, I still do not really care for his acting. I thought his best scenes were when he wasn't talking. Um so stuff like uh, the rowing scene on the slave ship, that was a great performance by him. Uh, but anytime he opened his mouth and started talking, it was just all overacting. It was all yelling. It was all like everything was at an intensity level 10, uh, which didn't always work. And so his best scenes definitely had to be when when he was who was doing and not saying the 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 emotions and the feelings. Um, but I will contend that he was better than The Greatest Show on Earth, which is, once again, damning with faint praise. <laughs> that, yeah, that, that's basically like saying getting stabbed is better than being shot, I guess, in, in your case. Am I right? Basically. <laughs> Fair enough. But what did you think of some of the other actors then? Uh, did you think any, any of the other ones were strong? Because I think some of them have some good... I have some good notes attached to them, I would say. Yeah, the, like, for... I think the performances sort of suited the the style of the film that was being made. I wouldn't really call them great. Uh, I really like Jack Hawkins, who, uh, who ended up playing Judah's adopted father later on in the film. Um, I was... I was very put off by um, Hugh Griffith's performance as the Sheik because that was extremely terrible brown face that the makeup that he had on, considering mm-hmm. that everyone else around him, all of his other, um, I, was he supposed to be Turkish? Yeah, something like that. And it's weird because he was, the, if I'm not mistaken, he ended up winning the Academy Award, whereas Stephen Boyd, I don't think, was even nominated, which is quite perplexing because I'm with you. I thought it was. I thought it was extremely distasteful, actually. Yeah, it really, it really bugged me. And he was also in Tom Jones and kind of had a weird part as well. Um, the performance was okay, but it was just a sort of very insulting, over the top 
uh, Arabic stereotype performance. And considering that like all of his, not henchmen, but entourage was basically actual brown people he really stood out like a sore thumb with his like shiny brown makeup that like after later on in scenes you could see like how his forehead is white again but the rest of his face is brown because he's sweating so much because of the lights and it was just like really odd about things like that so uh, uh like it was it was offensive in a way that alec guinness's and lawrence of arabia which we'll be talking about later was not um yes one one weird thing that i had an issue with was was the irony of the fact that uh the jews didn't like being owned by the romans they didn't like being controlled by them uh judah obviously hated being a slave because who wouldn't but at the same time the jews had no problem owning slaves themselves even after judah is freed he still has slaves and doesn't seem to have a problem with treating them like slaves. So it's just like this really weird dichotomy of, you know, I don't want to be owned, but I don't mind owning other people. Yeah, and it's especially weird if you think about it, because his biggest idol in the movie, which to him was just this man, while he was being a slave, who offered him water. That man obviously ended up being Jesus Christ himself. Um he sees Jesus at the end of the movie basically being forced to walk up the mountain to basically get crucified, holding his own cross. And he's like, that's, that's him. That's the man who saved my life. And he goes to offer him water and he gets into trouble as well. He sees a man who's basically under the most humility, humility out of the whole town there being forced to be crucified for, you know, stupid reasons just because of who he is. And even after that, after this man who told all of these tales throughout the city on how to be a good person, how to how to be better to one another, after all of this, and he still owns slaves, never mind his own personal troubles, this man who he looks up to, and this is supposed to be like this big this big story on how one man was turned by religion to to be stronger and to hold on to life. You're right, it is actually quite pretty damn weird now that you think about it. <laughs> Moving on to uh, things that I thought really worked well, as I said earlier, the chariot scene. I, like, yes. you put that in a movie today, I think that still would be one of the most exciting scenes of the year. The the fact that when you do, when you do action and stunts with practical effects and done live with actors will always look better than any CGI manipulation trickery that can possibly de be done um you can go as far back to even movies like king kong where when they do the the stunts for real it looks so much better and and this chariot scene doesn't hold a candle to basically anything that's being done today where it's absolutely stunning. They're remaking Ben-Hur. It's coming out oh. later this year. And I can only hope that the chariot scene is as exciting as they did in this version. I, I think it took them something like 10 weeks to film. And, and that the care and the attention to detail absolutely shows. Yeah, the editing is flawless in this sequence because... 
for nine minutes, you're seeing the chariot scene, and you're seeing every single rider being eliminated or where their spots are on the map. You're seeing the lap counter going down with a series of, of golden fish being being turned over. So, okay, now you know it's lap seven out of however many. It was nine, I think. And you see every player that gets eliminated, how they get eliminated, and where. And it all makes sense with all of the cuts, all of the ways they were taken out, whether their, their carriages crashed into the wall, whether they flipped over and the, the riders got dragged underneath the wheels of every other carriage. It was some pretty, pretty intense and bold stuff. But you got a chance to look at everything and know exactly where you were. Especially for, for a film back then, this could have easily been messy. And just you had to accept the fact that some people just crashed. But no, you got a chance to see everything. And it was beautiful. It really was. Um, specifically, there's a stunt where Stephen Boyd, who plays Masala, um, gets falls off the back of his chariot and gets trampled by some horses but he ends up by someone else and ends up holding on to underneath their chariot their uh rig that holds all the horses together and it's basically like a, a rehashing of john ford's stagecoach uh famous stunt and it works really well during that that whole sequence i couldn't help but like audibly gasp every time you know uh, a chariot's wheels end up touching each other or you know someone ends up riding along the wall or someone flips over and like you know you're watching a movie from the late 50s but you can't help but gasp at how realistic that they do it uh even with a minimal amount of blood that they show it just works so well for that um and (laughs) it's funny i'm I was watching it and I was like, wow, this actually reminds me a lot of the pod race scene in Star Wars Episode One. Do you do you think so? Uh, I, I think for very obvious reasons, yes, because let's not forget that George Lucas based the original Star Wars movies on, you know, samurai films and westerns and everything. So if he went back to the drawing board and went back to film school on the prequels, I wouldn't be surprised because it's the exact same thing. And let's not forget Masala's... Um, rigged wheels that had spikes on them to basically take out other ones does that seem like sabalba's flamethrowers to you exactly and <laughs> there even, you go. even sort of like the the savior figure of judah is very similar to anakin um in that movie at least uh the just everything the way that was sort of set up and shot um of the underdog story of the slave coming back of the the counters the um, you know, you have the big emperor guy sitting and watching. I know he wasn't an emperor in, in this movie, but in Star Wars, it's uh, one of the huts or something like that. There's just like so many parallels where it looks like you could have substituted each other and, and the plot would make sense. Basically, I do know that Ben-Hur itself was a remake of other Ben-Hur incarnations and there was a previous film. And in that previous film, it was filmed back in a time where actual stunt people legitimate some people and extras legitimately died on set and i thought i was witnessing the same thing here where i was like i'm actually watching people die like it seemed too authentically real that these people were being smushed to death by by hooves and by wheels but no it was just a very thrilling sequence so hey you know the film itself is a little bit disjointed but if anything was on point 
it was sure as hell this sequence, which, yeah, it holds up as one of the greatest ever filmed, I would say. All right, moving on to number seven, we have The Sound of Music from 1965. It's about a woman who leaves an Austrian convent to become a governess to the children of a naval officer widower. Uh, I'm going to let you talk about this one. <laughs> That's assuming that I, that I love this film. Uh, I guess I like it a little bit more than you do to the point that um, I'm able to talk about it. Um, I think that this movie... Personally, I find it extremely boring, but it doesn't do enough. It doesn't have flashes of brilliance, like even something as bad as Tom Jones had. Uh, and it doesn't have things that are terribly wrong with it, even as some of the, the better movies on this list have issues with. It just sort of coasts right through the middle while boring me the whole time. So I... I want to see what talking points that you have so I can sort of pivot from there. Okay, well, I will admit that, that there is a bore, but I'll explain what what was boring to me. For me, this is around three hours this film, by the way. For me, I split this up into basically a film of quarters and a film of of one and two. So there are three quarters of the film, you know, when, when Julie Andrews' nun character first meets the Von Trapp family, what she's engaging with them and, and becoming familiar with them and, you know, their their father played by Christopher Plummer when she's basically being accepted as a motherly role and then the complete ending, which I'm going to get to in a second. I wasn't bored for the first two quarters of the last quarter, but the third quarter, I, I was just screaming the whole time. Good God, we gets it. We get it. She's, she's perfect for Christopher Plummer's character. She's a great motherly role, just have them marry and get on with it. This is irritating now. We're at like the two hour mark. Let's let's wrap things up. To which we get to the next point, which everybody I've talked to has agreed, and you probably will as well. The sound of music is two films. It's Julie Andrews's character being one with the Von Trapp family and being a musical inspiration to their hearts and spirits. And then Nazism, where basically uh, you know. Austria is being affected by the Third Reich, and they're trying to flee because they are—they don't want to be a part of the movement. And they're being uh, Christopher Plummer's character is basically being forced to to swear to to Hitler, and he refuses to. And there's not much crossover that makes this work, so it's very perplexing as to how this was supposed to work. Because literally, it's like, yay, they're married, and then. Uh, they come back from their honeymoon, and there's a big swastika on their house, and he has to rip it down. And it's like, oh, okay, we're entering this territory now. I got it. There's a few illusions, but it's not enough. I know you have more things to complain about. I'll get into more compliments later, but it's not enough. What do you think? It's 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 a bit absurd. Yeah. Uh, like I literally, I normally write a couple pages of notes for each movie. I didn't write anything down for this movie. I, uh, <laughs> nothing stood out as being too good or too bad of, of choices, of performances, of direction. Um, so it's just so, it's just so middle of the road. Uh, it's after, after they get married, I, I made a joke, um, 
to my girlfriend who was watching the movie with me that I'm like, oh, and the credits should roll here because that was uh, a little over two hours at that point where, you know, it was a nice love story. It all wrapped up. You know, there is the, they could have probably completely taken out most of the Nazi stuff or even just use that a bit as a setting the tone of what was going on in Austria and Germany at the time. Uh, and it was a nice little love story. The end. Yeah. And then um, it's another hour. <laughs> a film that does something a bit similar but with a little bit more grace as life is beautiful where it starts off with roberto benini's character kind of trying to win this woman over called he calls principes i don't remember what he calls her, something like that and then later on once they're actually together you know he and his son are actually swung in by the holocaust into these camps and it's basically a, a comedy survival story on how he could change life for his son and not make him tortured that works a little bit more because there's an actual correlation where it's like this is somebody actually being affected and they're actually practicing their their charms and their happiness in times of turmoil. And the sound of music, there's a little bit of that, but it's not nearly enough. You know, there's a there's a part where, you know, the officers are searching through through the corridors of the mansion and through the courtyard to try and find the Von Trapp family. And there's a time where they're hiding and basically saying, should we sing about our favorite things? That's usually what we did when we were scared. Now is not the time to sing. Now you have to be very quiet. And it's like, you get a, a small sense of that, but it kind of feels tossed in just to wrap things up. It doesn't feel quite as sought out as, you know, Life is Beautiful had things kind of portrayed. Uh, do, you, do you agree with that? Sure, why not? <laughs> <laughs> basically, well, I guess... I'll use the word defend lightly because I, I like this movie. I, I certainly don't love it. Um, I do like Julie Andrews's charm. I do like the, the turnaround of Christopher Plummer's character going from a hard ass to, to basically being happy. I think the actual turning point itself was way too sudden where he's like, that's it. You're fired. I don't like you anymore. Then he hears her music and suddenly it's, Actually, you can stay. You're 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 great. You know. Aside from that actual turning point, I thought it was a nice gra gradual change. I do. I don't love the songs, but I, I do feel like they do add the life and spirit of the film, despite the fact that it's incredibly cheesy. The one part of the film that I legitimately liked a lot was when they're performing at this big festival at the end of the movie the von trapp family and it's basically their way of staying in the country a little bit longer before their father gets either arrested or, or sworn in as a nazi so they they perform and it's this very iconic scene where they basically come in first place so everybody who wins is called out like this performer came in third come on out to the stage and get your prize this performer came in second come on out get your prize and first place is the von trapp family and they're nowhere to be seen. And that's basically how they escaped. I thought that was legitimately the only part of the film where it's like, that was actually sensational. You know, aside from maybe some of the arrangements and choreographies for the song sequences. Aside from that, I, I think it's a sweet film. It's just uh, too sweet to the point where my teeth are falling out. And it's the sound of my teeth raking on the floor. That's basically it. But aside from that, I think it's far from the most harmful movie we've seen. It's just way too overly cutesy. And... Uh, I guess, yeah, I mean, uh, to allude to another Julie Andrews film, this is what it tastes like when this spoonful of sugar helping the medicine go down, basically. So is that enough to move on? 
Sure. Let's uh, let's move on. <laughs> and our last uh, movie that we're going to talk about today, uh, coming in at number six, is A Man for All Seasons from 1966. And it's the story of Thomas Moore, who stood up to King Henry VIII when the king rejected the Roman Catholic Church to obtain a divorce and remarriage. Um, this, you know, is sort of billed as being a historical biography drama but uh you you put it nicely it ends up playing out more like uh a legal drama than a historical drama in the sense that <clears throat> it has lots to do with uh, the procedure of uh going through the the pros and cons of uh creating the church of england separating from uh, the roman catholic church and all that sort of stuff and then there's some trial stuff going on as well and it's sort of like a really nice uh contrast between uh showing what life at the li the time was like while also being a bit of a um, uh, a period procedural type film yeah it's great because it's a very big turnaround and it's very fitting for the film because you basically have this this uh, this holy figure, you know, you have uh, Saint Thomas More, um, who at the time I guess wasn't crowned a saint. He was just seen as 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 a as a regular man, a lawyer with a, with a big religious following and background. Um, you have this man basically living, and people come to him for advice. What should I do about this? Oh, the Lord says this. Uh, um, how do I do go about this legally? Well, this and this and this. He, it's a, he's a very knowledgeable man, but once he's put on trial everything turns on him and then suddenly the world is his own courtroom and it's very frightening how quick that turnaround is and it feels so so great because that's that's exactly how it is nobody's prepared to be put on trial and the film perfectly replicates that i think yeah um i think this this movie does a lot of great uh stuff the problem with it is the pacing can be a little bit off at times and some of the movie is a little bit hard to follow uh, as far as it being a little bit droll and not understanding uh, the language that they're speaking in because they don't really um, make it easy for you to follow all along. Mm -hmm. um, but the performance in this film has to be some of uh, the best performances that I've seen in a while. Um, it's very much done like, okay, this is a play. We're going to film it. The only difference is instead of it being filmed on a stage, we're going to make some actual real sets, but still treat this like a play. So you have these fantastic real British theatrical performances and it's easy to look at, you know, the gr greatest actors of all times usually come from this, uh, this very technical British training school, uh, school of thought and, and stylistic where if you can't do, if you, if we can't plop you into any Shakespearean play, whether it's comedy, tragedy, historical, uh, things like that, if you can't play any character you're asked to, you're not a good enough actor. And, and I think this sort of epitomizes, uh, great.